Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. If you don't have 2 Corinthians chapter 2 open in front of you, I encourage you to do what I'm doing, getting it open in front of me right now. What exactly does maturity look like? How do we know if a human being is a grown-up? I think parents are curious about the answer to that question when they look at their kids. And I remember what it was like to be a kid. I know it was a long time ago, but I think as a kid you're wondering, when will I be considered a grown-up? And I think it's a little bit confusing in our world exactly what is the determining factor about whether you're a grown-up or not. Is it, is it simply becoming physically an adult and going through puberty? Is it graduating from high school? Is it getting your driver's license? Is it getting your first full-time job? Is it graduating from college? Or is it hitting some age, the age where you can vote or the age where you can uh, drink alcoholic beverages? What exactly does it mean to be a grown-up or to be an adult? It's, it's a bit confusing in our world. And in the church, the idea of Christian maturity, spiritual adulthood can be equally as confusing. What does it mean to be spiritually mature? Do you, do you, is it some knowledge about the Bible that you have? Is it hitting some threshold in terms of years in the faith? Is it being baptized? Is it being confirmed? Is there some special group of really spiritual people, some, some other sort of echelon that I can make it to above sort of the rank-and-file Christians, another elite group of Christians that I could be a part of that would make me considered to be mature? Well, the church at Corinth, to whom Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, was confused about this issue as well. In fact, they did believe that there was some sort of Christian elitism where believers could be in a category of the mature or the spiritual ones, people who had really arrived. And in our text for this morning, we're going to see the, that the Apostle Paul writes to this church correcting their understanding of what it means to be a mature Christian and calling them to pursue true spiritual maturity. And he does that by making a connection between Christian maturity and authentic wisdom. Now, maturity ought to be the goal of everyone here who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we need to take this text to heart this morning and discover the role of authentic wisdom in our spiritual growth. And I want to do that this morning, walking through the text in three movements. First, in verses 6 through 9, we want to observe the nature of authentic wisdom. And then in verses 10 through 13, we're going to look at the revealer of authentic wisdom. And then finally, in verses 14 through 16, the measure. What does it look like? What does authentic wisdom look like in a believer's life? So let's begin with the nature of authentic wisdom in verses 6 through 9. Now, the reason in this text that Paul needs to spend some time with the church of Corinth explaining the nature of authentic wisdom and defining what true wisdom is, 
is that he has been slamming their version of wisdom for the majority of the uh, letter so far. See, the Corinthians were really into a certain kind of wisdom. I don't use air quotes very often. My kids make fun of me when I do. But I feel like I do every time in the, that the Bible should have sort of quotes around wisdom whenever it's talking about the Corinthian brand of wisdom because their, their wisdom had a certain definition. That is not biblical. Their wisdom was actually a type of speech or, or persuasion or charisma that a person had. Its primary goal was not to um, communicate content but rather to influence people and impress people. It was all about the, the wow factor. And Paul dismantles this worldly, anthropomorphic, humanistic wisdom. And he says, in reality, it is foolishness. However, lest we get the impression that Paul is anti-wisdom, Beginning here in verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul begins to paint for us a picture of true, authentic wisdom and lets us know, in fact, that he is pro-wisdom. In verse 6, we see that Paul, Paul wants to talk about wisdom. He says, we do speak about wisdom. In fact, wisdom in the original is the first word in that sentence. Wisdom, we do speak about that to the mature, but folks... Understand, he says, this is not the wisdom that you all are accustomed to. That brand of wisdom belongs to this age and to the power brokers and the, of this age and the present state of affairs in the world now. But they, Paul says, they're doomed. They're destined to fade away. They're already on their way out. And so is that brand of wisdom. Authentic wisdom, he says, first of all, in verse 7, is from God. God, be thou our vision. Be our wisdom. You are the source of wisdom. And God's brand of wisdom, true authentic wisdom, it is as eternal as God's foreordained plans. Notice that in verse 7. Paul refers to the plans that God made literally before time began. Plans for us. Plans for the entire universe, the entire cosmos, for all of existence, everything that he has created. God's wisdom has to do with those plans. God's wisdom, Paul says, was a secret. It was hidden. The word for secret there is, is actually the word that gets translated mystery in many places in the Bible. It, it was a secret. It was a mystery hidden and concealed. But God, now God has revealed it for our benefit. God is making known to his people and to all of the universe his glorious plans. Plans that Paul says are beyond our wildest dreams. Plans that, that, that no human being has ever seen, no human being has ever heard about. In fact, the mind and the thoughts of human beings cannot even imagine the glorious, wonderful plans that God has in store for his people, for those who love him. But now, at this pivotal point in history, at this pivotal point in, in, the, in salvation history, the history of God's unfolding plan of redemption, now God is making known his glorious plans beyond our wildest dreams. And at the center 
of those glorious plans is the Lord of glory, is the crucified one, Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Paul has been directing our attention to all the way through so far here, a chapter and a half into the book of 1 Corinthians? He's been telling us about Christ. And not just about Jesus as a person or Jesus as a concept, but Jesus as the crucified Savior. I, I swore that I would know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified the center of God's unfolding plan of redemption, the center person in his unfolding plan of redemption. And Paul has already told us that in Jesus, wisdom is embodied. In Jesus, authentic wisdom can be seen. And so the key to tapping into authentic wisdom is tapping into this, this grand story, this grand narrative of redemption through Jesus Christ, the crucified one. That is the key that unlocks authentic wisdom. If you want to see wisdom, you look at Jesus Christ and you see him as crucified because he is the center point of God's unfolding plan of redemption. The difference between the counterfeit wisdom of the world that the Corinthians were so caught up in and authentic wisdom is as massive, Paul says, as God's plans for all of history in all of eternity. Notice how here again we observe how the Bible di di divides all of history into two ages. There is the present age and there is the age to come. The present age is dominated by the power brokers of this world. It is characterized by the fallenness of humanity and the sin that pervades our existence ever since we read about in chapter 3 of Genesis, that fateful day when the man and the woman ate of the fruit, gave into temptation, and sin came into the world, and the world is under a curse. And the, the effects of that curse, and the effects of sin in the lives of human beings, that is what characterizes this present age. This present age is, is characterized by the worship of human achievement and the worship of human influence. But, Paul says, it is doomed to pass away. In fact, it is already on the way out. And what is coming and what is already on the way in is the age to come. This is the promised age of God's kingdom. All those promises that God made that we read about in the Old Testament of a Savior who would come, of a Redeemer, of an Anointed One, His King who would usher in His kingdom, a kingdom in an age that would be characterized by perfect peace, perfect justice, righteousness, human flourishing. All these things glorifying their Creator as they were supposed to at the very beginning. This age is the age of Messiah, God's king. And in the age to come, Messiah's rule will be unchallenged. And Paul says that because of Jesus, because Messiah has come, and he is Jesus, and because of what Jesus has accomplished at the cross, defeating the enemy, because of his resurrection, offering eternal life to all who come to him, because of that, because the Messiah has come, the age of Messiah, the age of the kingdom is already spilling in. It's already spilling into the present age, which is doomed to pass away, which is wearing out. And so we live in the overlap of the two ages. 
The present age is fading away. It's doomed. And the age of Messiah is spilling in. And those who have become the subjects of King Jesus are experiencing the blessings of his kingdom. They know peace. They've been clothed in his righteousness. The spirit dwells within them, and so they flourish as human beings. You see, Jesus is the hero of this this grand story, this unfolding massive story of redemption that embodies the authentic, true wisdom of God. God means for this reality of the present age that is fading away and the age of Messiah that that is coming already and one day will come in all its perfection and consummation. God means for that reality to confront each one of us and each human being to confront us with this question, to which age do I belong? Am I still part of the present age that is passing away? Or through faith in King Jesus, trusting in what he has accomplished for me, Jesus crucified, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of human beings, but offering eternal life to all who who turn from their sin in repentance and faith in him. Have I come into that kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ? Friends, that is the most important question for each one of us this morning. And I urge you, if you have not turned to King Jesus, repenting of your sin and your connection We all begin life connected to this present age. Born in sin and acting on that. In rebellion, committing treason against our creator. But God sent Jesus, King Jesus, to be our savior, the Messiah. So that we could have forgiveness through his blood. Have you turned to him in faith? Have you you entered into his kingdom through faith? Has he done that work of redemption in your life? I urge you, turn to Jesus. Be his subject. He is a good king. He calls you into his kingdom this morning. So the nature of authentic wisdom we learn is revealed in God's unfolding plan of redemption. This this grand narrative about what God is doing in all of history for his glory, centered on the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Where does one find true and authentic wisdom? Paul has talked so much about false wisdom, about the world's wisdom. True wisdom is revealed in God's unfolding plan of redemption through Jesus. If you observe that plan, you will see the wisdom of God. And if you turn to Jesus, you will experience the wisdom of God through salvation. And so the pathway toward Christian maturity is growing in our understanding of this revelation of God's unfolding plan of redemption through Jesus, which is found in Scripture. Every passage of Scripture speaks of Jesus, whether his name is named there 
or not. Remember what Jesus said as he, as he chastised the Pharisees? He said, you look in the scriptures because you think just in them and, and reading them and, and reading about them and studying the scriptures, you'll find eternal life. And Jesus said, no, eternal life is found in me, he said. The scriptures are a conduit to get to Jesus. And so all of scripture points to Jesus. Every passage of the Bible either predicts his coming or prepares for his coming or reflects on who he is or tells us the results of what he's done. And so to understand the nature of authentic wisdom in what God has revealed in his unfolding plan of redemption, we look to Christ in all of Scripture and observe the wondrous mystery of the gospel there. The second thing we learn about authentic wisdom in our passage this morning is the revealer. We're not left on our own to figure out authentic wisdom. God has given us a helper to help us understand the, the grand story of redemption, the, the big gospel, if you will. We're not left to understand it on our own natural abilities. He's given us a helper who will reveal the glories of God in the unfolding plan of redemption through Jesus to us. That which was concealed, that mystery has now been revealed to us. Verse 10 is another verse where, uh, in the ESV anyway, the, the original first words are not front-loaded. It's hard to do that when you're translating. I think you know that uh, if you've ever dealt with another language. But the first words that are emphatic are, to us, in verse 10. To us, these things have been given. These, these great gospel truths, to us, they've been given. God has revealed them to us through the Spirit, through His Holy Spirit. You see, the other pivotal event that signaled the age of Messiah spilling in to the present age was God's pouring out of His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The prophet Joel had prophesied that in the last days, as the present age winds down and the age of God's kingdom and Messiah becomes a reality, God will pour out his spirit on all his people, men and women, young and old. And notice now that Paul affirms in verse 12 that believers have received the spirit. Now we have not received some spirit of this world, some merely natural, this plain spirit of the world, but we have received the Spirit who is from God. You see, the Holy Spirit unites the believer with Jesus, the crucified one, and he vitally links us with the age to come. And so that, that, is, our, that is our new residency, even as we still live in this age. The age of the Messiah is also called the age of the Spirit. And notice the significance of believers having received the Spirit. The Spirit, it says in verse 11, knows the mind of God. And then Paul gives us an illustration. Pastors like me sometimes have a hard time coming up with illustrations. And so it's nice when there's one provided in the text for you. Uh, and Paul has done this in the form of an analogy. He wants to say that no one knows the mind of God uh, except the Spirit that is within him. So he compares it to human beings and says, nobody knows a person's thoughts 
Nobody can read your mind. Now, husbands, I know that it appears that our wives can read our minds. Um, according to this verse, they can't, but I think I figured out what the deal is. They all figured us out on the first date, and so they can pretty easily predict what we're going to do. At least that's, I think that's the case with me. Uh, they don't need to read our mind. So the, the Bible is saying no one can literally read somebody else's mind. Nobody knows what's going I don't know what's going on in your head <laughs> as I look out at you. Nobody knows what's going on in your mind except your inner person, except your spirit. And Paul compares that to God and says, who could know? Who could understand the mind of God? Who could know the glorious thoughts that are going through God's mind, as it were? Except for the Spirit. Except for the, the Holy Spirit. Because, after all, the Spirit is God. But isn't that amazing? That because we have the Spirit dwelling in us, we've been united with Christ, that we can actually comprehend the thoughts of God. All his thoughts? Oh no, not by a long shot. The depths of his thoughts? No, no, not by a long shot. But we can truly, really understand and comprehend an aspect of God's thoughts. We can, we can think God's thoughts after him. But only because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us as his children. And, and look specifically what God wants to show us, the thoughts that he wants to show us in verse 12, the end of verse 12. It says, The Spirit who is from God will show us God's thoughts for this reason, or, or this is what we're going to see, that we might understand, and here it is, the things freely given to us. Here's what God wants his people to understand. Here's what the Spirit's ministry is in helping us understand. He wants us to understand the things freely given. Now, let's think about what that's saying. Things that are freely given. Something that God gives freely. Isn't there sort of a Bible word for that, something God gives freely? I mean, isn't that grace? God's grace? And isn't God's grace displayed in that grand story of the gospel? And so here, more than anything else, is what the Spirit wants to teach us and wants us to understand that about God's thoughts. It is, this, it is this unfolding plan of the gospel. And this really is the reason... Um, that Paul talks about his ministry of preaching, that, that his impact, unlike what the Corinthians are impressed about, the impact of his preaching is not going to be about how he says things, or can he spin the words, or can he impress people with his charisma. No, Paul wants the impact of his preaching to not rest on human wisdom, but on the ministry of the Spirit. See, the Spirit is the wow factor. The Spirit opening up our eyes to the, to, the, to the wow factor of God's redeeming love and how that's being played out in all of history and how that's not just Jesus saving individual people, which he does, praise God, but it is, it is him restoring all of creation, establishing his kingdom on this planet the way it was intended to be in the very beginning. He's going to restore it all to even greater glory. Every molecule in this universe. 
And so these are the things freely given to us by God that the Spirit wants to reveal to us. He wants to make the truth of the gospel made known to us. And he does that, again, through the words of Scripture. That's what Paul is saying at the end of verse 13, which is a little, no, I shouldn't say a little, it's really challenging to translate it. There's two or three ways that you could translate the end of verse 13, but they're all true. That's the wonderful thing about when we tend to run up against these, these rubs in the Bible and we're not absolutely sure there's a very small percentage of the Bible where we can't say with 100% surety what it said in the original, but of the options we have, it affects no major doctrine. It does not affect the, our understanding of the gospel. And often, as in this case, both options are true. So whether you understand the end of verse 13 as the NIV translates it, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words, so we're going to talk about spirit, spiritual stuff and use spirit words, or as the ESV translates it within the text here, interpreting spiritual truth, to those who are spiritual, the bottom line is all the same, which is the Spirit, capital S, is the key ingredient. He is the key ingredient in the words, he is the key ingredient in the message, and he is the key ingredient in the receiver of the message. The Spirit's role, the Holy Spirit's job, is to enable us to understand the thoughts of God. And he can do that because the Spirit is God. One with the Father, one with the Son, very God of very God. And he communicates to us through the gospel, not just information. The Holy Spirit is not on the Sergeant Friday program. Remember Sergeant Friday on Dragnet? Maybe if you're younger, you've watched it on Nick at Night. What was, uh, what was Sergeant Friday's motto whenever he was getting the information about the crime? Only the facts, ma'am. Just give me the facts, ma'am. Only the facts. The Spirit is not that way. The Spirit wants to communicate to our hearts much more than facts. He, he wants to show us the significance and the mind-blowing wonder. I mean, these are God's thoughts. These are wonderful thoughts. These are the realities of God's infinitely wise plan of redemption, his glorious plan to unite all things in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, King Jesus. These are the things graciously given freely, graciously by our good heavenly father. And so we learn that the revealer of authentic wisdom is the spirit of God who shows us not just the facts of the gospel story, but impresses our hearts with the significance of God's grace in the gospel. Let me ask you, do you read your Bible that way? Not just for the facts, ma'am, but to appreciate the significance of what you're reading or what you're studying or what you're hearing when it's preached or what you're talking about in your small group or Bible study. Friends, let's not just observe and identify Jesus in all of Scripture. He is there. We need to observe and identify him. But let's not just do that. Let's worship Jesus in all of Scripture 
as the Spirit reveals the wonders of God's love to us, displayed in Jesus. Remember, remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus had risen from the dead? And they didn't know it was Jesus, but Jesus was showing how he was revealed in all of Scripture. Do you remember what it said in Luke 24 about their response to that? It said their hearts burned within them. They were fired up. They were passionate. They were amazed. They were in wonder. Friends, that ought to be our response as we read Scripture, as we, as we see Jesus revealed and as we make the connections. And we're not going to have mountaintop experiences every time we open the Bible and read it. But if we don't come to God's Word, looking for Jesus, looking for what is revealed. What does this passage say about this grand story, God's unfolding plan of redemption, his restoration of me and his restoration of the cosmos? Well, if we start to see that in Scripture, that's so big, it ought to blow our minds. It ought to cause us to worship. The same Spirit who lived inside of those disciples walking with Jesus on the road, lives inside of us to show us the wonders of the gospel. Finally, what is the measure of authentic wisdom? What is the measure of authentic wisdom? Paul gives us a picture of authentic wisdom in these last verses, verses 14 through 16. It's a picture of authentic wisdom in action in the life of the believer. So what does authentic wisdom look like? Well, Paul, Paul actually gives us two pictures. It's kind of like when you see the before and after picture in the ad. The first picture of, of, is what authentic wisdom is not like. This is the before picture. It is of the natural person in verse 14. Look at that. Paul writes, the natural person does not accept the things of God. For they are folly to him. In fact, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is a sobering reminder that none of us, no person ever came to saving faith in Jesus Christ through his or her own efforts. Rather, our sin and our depravity is so radical that the truths of the gospel seemed ridiculous to us until... The Spirit gave us life. Until the Spirit took our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, and as it were, gave, gave eyes to our souls to see Jesus as glorious, to see Jesus as the Savior, to see our need for Him, and, and to turn to Him in repentance and faith. It's also a sobering reminder of why those with whom we're sharing the gospel do not yet believe. They're not able to unless the Spirit gives them the gift of faith. And so we keep on sharing the gospel with them, putting our confidence not in, in our ability to, to persuade them or, or push them over the line, but in the power of God to radically change them. Remember what Jesus said to Paul about his preaching in the city of Corinth. It's recorded in Acts 18. Keep preaching. Don't be afraid. I have many in this city. 
Jesus saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Our role is to communicate the gospel. God will change hearts. He's promised to do that. The second picture we have is of the spiritual person. And Paul isn't so much, here we go with the air quotes again, categorizing people as spiritual as much as he is kind of jamming the Corinthians a little bit because they had formed these sort of categories that there's sort of the rank and file Christians and then there are the spiritual Christians, the really impressive ones. And what Paul is really saying here is we all want to be spiritual persons. In fact, you might even capitalize the letter S there. We all want to be persons of the Spirit, believers who are, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and, and submissive to the Spirit's promptings and movements in our lives. The spiritual person or the person of the Spirit is that person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and is submissive to the Spirit's work in his or her life. Look at, look at verse 15 for that picture. The spiritual person judges all things, but is him or herself to be judged by no one. You see, the spirit-led believer is, is able, Paul is saying, to make judgments. He's not talking about being judgmental. I know we love to use that word, don't judge me, you're being judgmental. That's, Paul's not getting into that. He's talking about using good sense, using your mind, being discerning making good judgments. A spirit, the mark of a spiritual person, a spirit-led believer, is that they're able to make good judgments. They're discerning. They make good decisions. At the same time, they are not subject to the judgments of others, that is, to others outside of the body of Christ, to natural persons. I mean, how could they? The natural person doesn't get it. Paul already said that. Our behavior as followers of Jesus baffles people outside of Christ. I mean, have you experienced that? You're doing what Sunday morning? You're going where? Oh, wow. You, you, you give money away to, to people you don't know? Really? That's kind of weird. Uh, you're waiting to enjoy sex until you're married? Wow. I don't really get that. It, these things baffle the world. But here's why. How could they? They don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And so the lives of those who are Spirit-led leave them scratching their heads. Paul ends this passage with emphasis, using a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Look at it in verse 16 talking about the spirit-led person, the spiritual person, the, the mature and maturing believer. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, so as, so as to instruct the Lord? And, and by the way, this is sort of a side note, but I think important. When you look at this, tag, this, this quote from Isaiah in its original, and it says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord? Isaiah uses God's covenant name. Yahweh, God Almighty. But here the Lord is referring to Jesus Christ. And so what are we learning from this passage that we also learn from other, many other passages in the Bible, namely that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is fully God. 
Passages like this help us to build our doctrine of the divinity of Jesus. They help us to build our understanding of the Trinity. Okay, back in. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ the Lord. Believers do, Paul is saying. So the spirit, uh, the spirit-led person is able to, to think the, the, the thoughts of God after him. Paul's answer to the question here in verse 16 is emphatic. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Well, no one. <laughs> no one has understood the mind of the Lord. And yet, because of God's saving grace, because of his inclusion of us and his eternal plans of redemption, we actually have the mind of Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. The more we think like Christ, the more we will be like him. The more we will set up patterns of thoughts that are Christ-like. The more our lives and our behaviors will be Christ-like. And so to sum that up, the measure of authentic wisdom is Christ-like thinking and decision-making. What does it look like to be a mature and maturing Christian? It looks like someone who thinks and decides like Jesus. This is what authentic wisdom looks like, lived out. Followers of Jesus are not swayed by the self-centered, short-term thinking of their culture and the present age. They're not being conformed to the thinking of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of their minds. They're taking every thought captive to the lordship of Jesus Christ, King Jesus. They're able to make decisions that glorify God and serve his kingdom purposes. That's what it looks like. That's what the measure or the picture of authentic wisdom looks like. We began our journey through this text of Scripture looking at the connection between Christian maturity and authentic wisdom. Now, let's bring those things together and make that connection. Here is what I believe is the main message of this passage. That Christians grow toward maturity as the Spirit works to reveal the wisdom of God in the gospel and as the Spirit works to empower us toward Christ-like thinking. What does it mean to be mature? What does it mean to be a maturing Christian? Well, it's the Spirit working in us, showing us, revealing us the wisdom of God through the gospel, and us responding to that in new ways of thinking, Christ-like ways of thinking that are reflected in our decisions and our behavior. That's a message that the Corinthian church needed to hear. They had some messed up understandings about Christian maturity, and so Paul wrote to them to correct them and to instruct them. But this morning, God's word brought to us by his spirit, the one who knows the mind of God, intends to correct us and instruct us. The spirit's desire is to teach us, those within whom he dwells, spiritual truths by means of spirit-infused words. How do we measure spiritual 
spiritual maturity in our own lives or in the lives of those around us? How do we measure it? And as a result, how do we pursue spiritual maturity? I mean, if we measure spiritual maturity in terms of Bible knowledge, then the pursuit of maturity means more classes and more courses. If we measure spiritual maturity in, in terms of service, then pursuing it means filling our ministry resume with all the different ways we've served. If we measure spiritual maturity by Christian experience, then our pursuit of Christian maturity is going to look like uh, pursuing spiritual highs and, and mountaintop experiences and, and, and new ideas. If we understand spiritual maturity in terms of leadership, then we're going to measure it in terms of how many people do, do I influence or do I lead. Some here may be convinced that, like the Corinthians, they have arrived. You may think that you are the mature one. You are the spiritual one. You're at another level of spirituality. And I think God's word would correct you this morning if that's your way of thinking. That we should all be continually maturing. That, that we, none of us have, have gotten to the, to the depths. Paul said the spirit explores the depths of God's thoughts. None of us have mined all the way down into that ocean to understand all of the truths and the realities and the glories of the gospel. And so we all need to be maturing as believers and pursuing spiritual maturity. That may be the way some think. But my guess is that a lot of us just wonder, am I growing? Am I a mature Christian? Would others say I'm a mature Christian? Am I a spiritual grown-up? Friends, this passage ought to give us great confidence. Not in our own performance, not in a five-step process that you can follow to become a really mature Christian, but it ought to give us confidence in God's commitment to our growth as believers. I mean, he has given us his spirit. God dwells within his people. He dwells within you if you are his child. He's committed to your growth. He's committed to finishing the work that he's begun in you. He's given you his spirit, and he's given us his word. The word that shows us the unfolding, glorious plan of redemption, the gospel. And the Spirit of God is committed to, to showing us the wonders of God's story through the gospel. And as we do that, that will transform our mind. It will change our way of thinking. We will begin to, to have the mind of Christ. And so our lives will begin to be shaped and formed more into the image of Christ. And therefore, we will more and more glorify our maker. Friends, be encouraged this morning. You don't have to be really smart. You don't have to be really influential. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're 
been a believer for a long time or a short time. doesn't matter whether you have a Christian heritage. God wants to grow you in his grace. He wants to mature you. He, he wants to make you a spiritual Christian. He wants to grow you in his grace. In everything that is available, his spirit and his word is available to you and is promised to you for your good, for his eternal glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we are grateful to you, first of all, for the gift of salvation. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who does not know you through Jesus Christ, who has not looked to him in faith, renouncing their own resources, their own wisdom, and completely trusting in Jesus and his righteousness the forgiveness that his shed blood provides for those who trust in him. And God, I am grateful that for all who, by your grace, are trusting in you, you absolutely mean to finish the good work that you've begun in us. And we thank you for giving us your spirit and Spirit, we thank you for your ministry of revealing to us the wondrous story of Jesus in the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that we would be more and more submissive and responsive to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And Lord, we pray that you would just expand our minds and grow our understanding of your unfolding plan of redemption. Lord, show us your wonders through your word that we may grow in our capacity to worship you and to love you and to make you known in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.